Welcome. Thank you. Uh, thanks for being the church and for bringing it into uh, this room here. <clears throat> Several years back, when this is when Olivia and I were first married before we had kids, uh, she said to me one day, hey, you want to run a race? <laughs> and so uh, I said, yeah, let's go. Uh, let's, let's run. And she said, not right now, silly. Do you want like, to run a real, like a legit official race? I said, okay, what is it? She said, in Winter Park, <laughs> there's a Winter Park two-miler. I know some of y'all have done that before. And uh, I, so I said, hey, you know, when is it? She said, it's in a couple weeks. I said, couple weeks, that's cool. You know, it could be tomorrow. I don't really need to train. It's just two miles, right? Two miles, no big deal. Uh, at the time, I was uh, serving our youth ministry, and our youth meetings were on Friday night. And the race was on uh, Saturday morning at 7 a.m. Uh, windy, beautiful, down uh, Park Street, uh, historic uh, area, Winter Park near Rollins College. Hey, this would be a lot of fun. There were some other people from our church that were doing it as well. Uh, the, night, uh, the night before, during our youth meeting, and some of you guys uh, may remember this, we um, had pizza. So I had about four pieces of pizza and a fudge bar. That was, my, uh, that was my power bar that got me ready for the race. And so uh, about 10 o'clock at night, I had pizza and fudge bar. We went, to, we went home. We went to sleep, woke up about 6 o'clock, drove out, uh, got to Winter Park by 7, and I was ready. I was excited. Uh, my first ever uh, race since I was in like middle school or something. And so um, Olive was looking for her friend and she was like somewhere way back and I was in the front and we took off and things started out really well for me. Uh, in fact, I think I was, without boasting, I think I was in the top 30 for the first maybe like 10 seconds of the race because of where I was lined up. So things were going really well. Uh, I was at a full-on sp- <laughs> sprint uh, and other people were, I guess they were managing their their their. Uh, energy in their reserves, but I mean, two miles, right? No big deal. So run, and I'm doing pretty good. And after what I felt like, I didn't have a watch or anything, and you know, this was before iPhone technology. I didn't have any of that, so I didn't know how far I had run. But it felt like I'd been going for about ten minutes. About ten minutes, I said, "Well, I must be." I mean, ten minutes. I usually, I, when I was little, I could do a seven-minute mile, so must be, you know, at least halfway done by now. So I'm like huffing and puffing, and and after I go about two minutes longer. There's a sign that says half mile marker, <laughs> which means I've gone half a mile. And I felt like I'd been running for about 12, 15 minutes already. But I was like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. It's going to take me all day. I'm going to be the, like the last one to finish. And probably I'd been going for maybe a few minutes, but it seemed like forever. And I was huffing and puffing. And then a little bit after that, I started feeling a little nauseous. I felt like, you know, I was like, am I riding mission space? What's going on inside of me? And, and uh, a little while longer, I, I went and I started walking. I started walking and started feeling weird and started feeling queasy. And so <clears throat> I pulled over. Didn't really need to pull over, but I went over the sidewalk. I don't know why. I didn't mean to talk about throwing up two weeks in a row, but I did. Uh, I threw up <laughs> on the sidewalk there. Uh, my throw up is all over Central Florida right now. <laughs> so I threw up. I said, oh, that felt much better. I said, but it would be wise of me not to run at this point in the race. So I started walking. And at this point, everybody started passing me. Like Olive and a friend uh, were running past me. And, and they said, hey. And, and they pointed at me. And they laughed as they ran on. And, and then other people were passing me. And so I said, OK, no point. And as long as I, you know, as long as I finish the race, it's OK. So I started walking, walking, walking. And I was thinking to myself, man, how come Olive didn't stop for me? That's kind of, uh, kind of jacked up. But kept on walking and turned the corner, and all of a sudden, I could begin to hear the crowds of people right, cheering for everyone as they come down the home stretch, down Park Avenue, uh, right in front of, actually, I don't know where it is, but down, down Park, 
And I started hearing the crowds. I was like, oh my gosh, and this is exciting. And, and all of the sense of defeat and sorrow began to give way to this, this sense of, ah, I can do it. I can finish this race. And as I got to the final street, it was kind of like this. All the crowds were on, on, on both sides. I saw the finish line. And everyone is like jumping up and down. They're cheering. They're like, yeah. And they're not cheering for me in particular, but they're just cheering in general. And I'm hearing, and I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. And, and so at that point, I said, with all of the remaining energy in me, I still had like a couple pieces of pizza energy in me. I started running. People are clapping. I saw the finish line. I'm getting closer and closer. And some of these people had been running the entire time. So they've got this like look of utter, like just anguish and pain. Uh, but I've been walking for most of the time. And there's a photographer at the end. And so uh, I just started booking it. And I'm like all happy. Got this big old smile. So the picture is great. And all these like struggling people and then me with this big old smile on my face. Awesome. And I finished the race. And I said, yeah, this was amazing. And I thought to myself after that, what was it? Because I, I started really well, and I was in danger of not finishing well, but I thought to myself, I need to finish well, because that's important. What is it that helped me to finish well? Here's three things that I was reflecting upon. The first thing, the first thing as I saw, as I entered into that, that, that home stretch, the first thought I had was the worst is behind me. I've gone through all of the yuckiness of throwing up and getting nauseous and feeling sick. All that's left is glory. That was the first thought. The second thought is, I'm not alone in this. There are other people who've been struggling, and they're going to run, and they're going to cross the finish line along with me. At least I'm not alone, and I'm not the last one. And then the third thing was, there's all these people who are cheering for me to finish well. And that got me so excited as I ran and crossed the finish line and ended that race. I said, man, that was a beautiful, beautiful thing. Because it's one thing to start well. But it's more important, I think, that we end well. We come to the final hours of Jesus' life. And we've come to the end. And the question is, how will Jesus finish? We know that at the end of all, because we have the privilege of looking back on history, the privilege of singing songs like this, there's a battle in uh, the the war on death was waged, the power of hell forever broken. We know that Jesus is going to win. But... The reality for Jesus as he neared the finish line and it became crystal clear that the hour had come, the three things that motivated me were not there for Jesus. The worst was ahead of him. As bad as things had been up until this point in time, they would only get much, much worse. The fact that I had people around me made it easier, but Jesus had nobody. And the crowds that cheered for me, the only crowds around Jesus were the ones that were calling for his death. So how did Jesus finish well? What gave Jesus the motivation and the strength to be able to end well in his moment of greatest anguish when any other mortal would have thrown in the towel? Let's look at Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane this darkest night of his soul. How could Jesus possibly end the race well with all that was up against him? This is God's word, verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. 
he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is God's word. So, What does this passage teach us about Oh, finishing well and about enduring in the face of difficulty? The first thing that we see from the life of Jesus, second thing from Peter and the others, and then third thing for for all of us, kind of tie it all together. Uh, We see that uh, in prayer, prayer gives us the strength that we need to face the day. Right? Prayer gives us the strength that we need in order to face what lies before us. I, uh, the first time I remember being in college, I ever had to give a speech was my second year in college. Uh, I was taking a class called the Asian American Experience, and it was talking about um, just experiences of immigrant Asian Americans, first, sec- first, second generation. And I forgot what exactly the requirement was, but we had to do a speech. We had to write something and, and write this speech. And so I'd written something up, and uh, I knew that it was my day to share in about a week. And about a week out, I started getting extremely anxious and nervous. Started getting really <clears throat> panicky and this feeling of dread and, and, and feeling overwhelmed. And as each day got closer, each day a certain number of people shared, and then if they didn't make it that day, then they would share the, you know, they'd be the first one to share the following uh, class. And so I remember just waiting and waiting and waiting. It was almost that the torturous part was waiting, more so than actually getting up there. I mean, that was terrible in and of itself. But I remember being so nervous, and for the two days before that class met, I couldn't hardly eat. And people would ask me, what's wrong with you? It was like nothing, but they could tell that there was something that was so deeply disturbing in my soul as that day got closer. And I felt overwhelmed to the point of being incapacitated from doing anything else. When you get overwhelmed with the stuff of life, where do you go? What do you do when you feel like the weight of the world is upon you and you don't know where to go? Where do you go? Jesus goes to the place that he always goes. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where he always went when he was in his time of great need. He would go to the garden and he would spend time with God in prayer. 
And Jesus is, is overwhelmed at this point. He says, sit here while I go over there and pray. He takes the, not, the eight disciples hanging out, but he takes three of them, Peter, James, and John, the other gospel writers tell us. He takes them with him in order that in his time of great need, they would be there to support him. And three times he asks them to pray, and three times he goes over to pray. And Jesus says the beginning point, he says in verse 38, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I don't think there's a clearer picture of the humanity of Jesus than what we see here. That he experiences the very thing that you and I experience, but in a degree that we could never. No man, no woman has ever experienced that, and no man or woman ever will. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And Jesus is in deep and utter anguish. As he thinks about this so much that he tells his friends, he says, hey, can you stay here and pray with me? Watch and pray with me. This is what he asked them. We see the depth of the sorrow, the depth of the suffering, the overwhelming sense of anguish that has come upon our Savior Jesus. And he goes to the garden to pray. So that's what we see at the beginning. What do we see at the end of this passage? At the end, Jesus says, In verse 45, three times goes and pray. He returned the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. At the end, Jesus says, the hour has come. The bad guys are here to fulfill the will of God. Let's go. See, the way that you read it, 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 rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. Sometimes we might... Think of it as, hey, they're here. Let's go. Let's run and let's hide so that they can't find me. That's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, when this language, rise, let us go, it's a battle cry. Saying the time has come. The battle is about to be waged. And the conquering king, the victor is rising up saying, let's go to war. It's not Jesus saying, hey, we got to run. I'm scared because the hour has come. What this is, is this is Jesus, the captain of the football team before they go into the battle, saying, it's game time. Game on. Let's go and let's kick some butt. This is Leonidas of the Spartans, 300 mighty men going to fight against the Persian army, saying, this is time. It's William Wallace on the front lines in Braveheart, saying, let's go. Let's go. Let's go fight this battle. Jesus is pictured here as the conquering king who is going to fight the battle to slay the dragon to rescue the damsel in distress. And who is the object of his undying affection? His bride, the church. And for our sake, Jesus, overwhelmed at the beginning, rises up in a battle cry and says, let's do what I was put on this earth to do. What happened in between overwhelmed to the point of death to let's go and let's kick some satanic butt? What happened? Very simple. Let me give you the five-cent answer to the billion-dollar question. Jesus prayed. And in prayer, 
he found strength to face what lay before him in that day. That's why he says to us, pray, give us this day our daily bread, that we might be sustained to overcome that which confronts us today. Jesus found strength to meet the enemy. He went into that place to pray. Where do you go? Where do you go? When you feel overwhelmed, when you've got that week, when you don't know how you're going to make it through, when you've got so many things on your plate, where do you go? We typically go to the place we usually go when we feel overwhelmed. That's why some of us, I mean, this is huge. I mean, this is a great, a great psychoanalysis uh, uh, of why you go to your addictions. And why do you go to alcohol? Why do you go to sex? Why do you go to pornography? Why do you go to gambling? Why do you go to money? Why do you go to shopping? Why? A lot of times, man, if we go during a time of stress, because we're going to find the fulfillment of a promise that we're looking for when we feel overwhelmed to the point where we feel like we can't go on. And the place Jesus goes when he feels overwhelmed is a place that he always goes to. He goes to the Father. Because he's the only one the only one who can actually cash in on the promise to comfort you in your time of greatest need. Where do you go? And how is that working for you in terms of bringing you the peace that you so desperately long for? Jesus promises that he's your peace. Do you experience that peace from him? I know some of y'all are saying, no, I'm not. Quite frankly, I don't believe that anymore. I grew up all my life thinking, Jesus is a prince of peace. I've got peace like a river. But I don't feel that. I don't feel that peace. No Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no peace. I don't feel that. I don't feel any of that. Why? So the other day, um, I was driving home from church, driving Manny home from church uh, after Awana, and she was a little bit tired. When she's tired... She gets cranky. When she gets cranky, she gets upset, and she begins blaming things and people for whatever frustration she's feeling. And so that particular day, we're driving home, and she started crying about something. I said, Manny, what's wrong? And she said, I'm mad at Mommy. I'm like, what? No one gets mad at Mommy. Mommy is not even here. You haven't seen Mommy in, like, hours. And after she she ate chicken wings on Wednesday, and she said, Mommy promised me after I eat chicken, She's going to give me a mint. I said, and so what, why are you upset? She said, because mommy didn't give me a mint. I said, oh, that's too bad. She said, yeah, she promised. Mommy promised that she's going to give me a mint. I said, did you, did you ask her for a mint? She said, no. I said, Manny, the reason why you didn't get your mint, even though mommy promised, was because you didn't ask her for it. It's hard to reason with a child who's upset when they want their mint and they're very sleepy, but it made sense to her. And sometimes we think to ourselves, hey, you know what? God promised me comfort. Why am I not being comforted? God promised peace to me. Why do I feel all this stress? God promised that he would be there for me. Why do I feel so alone? The fact that he promises is one thing, but we need to exercise the faith which are the hands by which we receive the promise of God. We find that in prayer. 
We were talking yesterday, a few of us after we, we went to prayer meeting, we went to Chick-fil-A and we're talking, we're eating about, talking about taxes. You do your own taxes? No, I do mine on TurboTax. Do you, uh, I get an accountant. My accountant's name is John Ballantyne, okay? John Ballantyne is my accountant. What does that mean? That means he does my taxes. <laughs> Duh, that's stupid. No, but in order for him to be my accountant, I have to take my paperwork to him and go to him and ask him to do my taxes, just because he is an accountant doesn't make him my accountant unless I go to him. And Jesus is the Prince of Peace. But you'll only experience that and appropriate and receive that peace in your heart when you go to him and you ask him for the peace which may have seemed so elusive to you because we haven't gone to him in prayer. Do you know this Jesus? the Prince of Peace. When we go to him, he promises that he will give us the strength that we need. Jesus, in prayer, teaches us that when we pray, we receive the strength that we need to face what lies before us that day. Second thing, second thing that we see here, and we see this through Peter, failure in prayer leads to failure everywhere. What does that mean? So here Jesus gives us the example Jesus goes and he prays, and then when he's tested with all of, I mean, this is not just, it's not just a typical temptation that you and I face. This is all the powers of hell are fighting against Jesus in this moment. And the same temptation he faced in the wilderness, he faces now in the garden. What was the temptation in the wilderness? You don't need to go to the cross. Bow down and all the kingdoms will be yours. Don't go to the cross, Jesus. And it says, Jesus withstood the temptation and Satan left him until an opportune time. The opportune time would come here in the garden, not in the wilderness, but in the garden. Same temptation comes. You don't have to go to the cross. And so the temptation that Jesus brings before the Father, it's not a sin to be tempted. That's part of all humanity. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. If it is possible, first prayer, verse 39 May this cup be taken from me. So he takes that temptation and he brings it before God in prayer. And through that prayer, the second prayer is not let it be taken from me. He says, if it's not possible, then let your will be done. So God, through prayer, is changing the heart of Jesus so that when that time of immense testing comes on the cross, Jesus passes the test. Peter here. Peter, you remember the one who boasted just uh, uh, even, I don't know how long, minutes or hours ago, Jesus, even if everyone fails you, I will not deny you. I will die with you, Jesus. Whatever it takes, Jesus, I'll be there for you. I will be loyal. I will be faithful. I will be true. Whatever it takes. And so here Jesus, in his time of greatest need, says, Peter, James, John, I need you guys. Pray with me. Jesus is expressing his humanity that he needs prayer, but he's also saying you need prayer because in a moment, Peter, you're going to be put to the test. And three times Peter is told to pray and three times Peter falls asleep. And those three failures in the Olive Garden led to three times when a little servant girl, just normal people say, this guy, Galilean, you knew Jesus. And he says, I didn't know him. In fact, he called down curses upon himself. 
They say, no, 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 I never knew him. I never knew him. And then the rooster crowed, just as Jesus said. Three times he failed in the school of prayer. Three times he failed in the testing room of life. Guys, failure to pray will constantly lead to failures outside of the prayer closet. Prayer is our lifeline to God. Satan doesn't he doesn't care if you go and you do all of your biblical hallelujah great church things without praying. He's fine with that. Prayerless decision making. Yeah, go make your decisions without praying. Satan loves that. Prayerless preaching. He loves that. Uh, Make people laugh. That's great. But no deep effect to change the lives of people. He's fine with that. Prayerless worship leading. He's fine with that. Get people all excited because the higher they go, the harder they fall. That's fine. Yeah, he, he laughs at that. He says, go ahead, have your Christian powwow. Go sing kumbaya around the campfire. As long as you don't pray, that's cool. Prayerless house church leading. Prayerless fighting against temptation. He doesn't care about any of those things. That's why Satan will do everything in his power to keep you from praying. To justify not praying. To justify your inability to pray. To say, oh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus, even you said that. He's fine with that. He's fine with a prayerless life. But all of Satan and his demons and the powers of hell tremble when we get on our knees and pray. Every five-second prayer makes a difference in eternity. Strengthens your soul. You want to be much for God? Then you need to have much with God. You want to be a mover and shaker for the kingdom of God, that we've got to be a mover and shaker on our knees in prayer. Because failure to pray leads to failure in so many other places of life. I talk to, I mean, half of my counseling is with people who say they've messed up, they've fallen, they failed. I talk to pastors, I talk to leaders, I talk to people who are just starting out on the Christian journey and they, they talk about these patterns, these ruts they've gotten into. And so we hear the story and almost inevitably the story is the same. So what happened? How did this compromise happen? You dissect it at its core. I wasn't doing what I should have been doing as a child of God. I wasn't in the word of God. And I wasn't praying. That simple. I remember talking with a college student. He was, it was towards the end of his school year. And he was very, uh, almost at like, a, just with a deep sense of regret. And I asked him what was going on, and he said, you know, my roommate and I have been getting into a lot of fights, been getting into a lot of just minor annoyances that get unspoken, and then we just start having this passive aggressiveness, and and things just aren't working out very good, and we're just counting down the days until the semester ends, the lease is done so that we can move out. And so he was telling me, you know, it seemed like such a great idea our first year. I mean, we were good friends. We served on the praise team together in our campus church, and we were loving God together. And so it seemed like such an easy thing. Well, let's just live together. That'll be great, and, and we'll go into uh, the, the year, and we'll be bros. And as he's telling the story at the end, he said, you know what? Uh, you know what? This is what I think happened, that I am living in the repercussions of choosing a roommate without having clothed that decision in prayer. I think about a lot of the choices that we've made. Maybe if we connect the dots, 
seems right to us. Proverbs 16, 25. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. A lot of times, man, hey, that's a no-brainer. That job pays more money. More Korean people there. I might get a husband or a wife. Hey, that's a no-brainer. Yeah, I know. That's, that's a fast road to promotion. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in, in the end it leads to death. Right? Satan applauds our prayerless decision-making because he knows that the ways in which God leads and guides is oftentimes different from the ways that the world would tell us we ought to go. If we fail in prayer, it leads to countless failures in other places because God at the very heart doesn't want us to be dependent upon ourselves for everything. He wants us to be dependent upon him. And how do we do that? By going to him in prayer. That's why so many times, man, we, we, we uh, bang our heads against the wall because we run up against these problems that we can't solve for the life of us and Google and, and ask.com and all of these things. Even YouTube can't tell us how to overcome this issue. Yes, God doesn't want us to try and figure it out on our own. Satan will do everything in his power to keep us from praying. And Jesus, when he says, the spirit is willing in verse 41, but the body is weak, he's not excusing our prayerlessness. He's saying, I know that you want to, you need to pray, but your body doesn't want to. Therefore, you need to discipline yourself to pray. Don't excuse yourself. Discipline yourself to pray. Tell, you know, we always say, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm just too busy to pray. I, I, I love and I hate, but I love at the same time hating what John Piper says. He says, the singular purpose in eternity of social media, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, is so that when we stand before God on judgment day, we cannot say the reason I didn't pray was because I didn't have enough time. Dang. That's a kick in the back of the pants. Because we say we're too busy to pray. He said, the Bible would say, no, 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 you're not too busy to pray. Here's your reality. You're not too busy to pray. That You don't want to pray enough. If you wanted to pray, you would make time to pray. See, that's simple. You, if, if you're a not all of us are Christians here. That's okay. But if you're a Christian, that means you bear the name of Jesus Christ. It means that you are now defined by Jesus. Because of a relationship with Jesus, you're a new person. Everything is different. If you bear the name of Jesus, then you ought to want to be with the one whose name you bear. In the same way that when a woman gets married... Her name changes. I'm a different person now, except for Olivia. Olivia's maiden name was Kim. <laughs> she got married. Her name is still Kim. But she's a new person. She's saying, I bear the name of my husband now. What would you say to a wife who bears the name of her man and says, you know what? I'm too busy to spend any time with him. I would say, are you really married? What do you say to a Christian? who bears the name of Jesus, says, I'm too busy to pray. As followers of Christ, prayer is as normal to the Christian life as breathing. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. 
If we're Christians, we pray. It's what we do. It's how we roll. It's how we live. And perhaps the reason for a lot of our failure in life is because we fail in this one place. Can I tell you, Leonard Ravenhill, my, one of my favorite ancient Scottish, Scottish preachers, <laughs> when a pastor is not praying, he's playing. I know this in my own life. When a congregation is not praying, they're straying. I know this by experience too. A sinning person will stop praying, but a praying person will stop sinning. Failure to pray, guys, will lead to failure everywhere. That important. It's the air that we breathe as a people of God. The second thing we see. Last thing we see. Jesus drank the cup of wrath in order that we could drink the cup of grace. You've never seen Jesus like this before. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You've seen, in fact, you've probably seen many other people face death in a more valiant, in a braver way than we see Jesus here. Greek and Roman philosophers would talk about, uh, who was it, uh, Plato, in his book Phaedo, when he writes about the death of Socrates, Socrates condemned to drink hemlock poison and die, that on his deathbed he was throwing out jokes to people, just throwing out one-liners, making people laugh, because the philosopher never shows fear in the face of death. These Greek and Roman philosophers be making light of death as they entered into that long, dark hallway. Jewish people would be praising God. You know, you hear about these, these martyrs today, persecuted church, who worship God as their body is being scorched by the flames. Why is it that Jesus, he doesn't look the part here? He doesn't face death the same way that these guys do. In fact, Mark's gospel says that he, Luke says that he was so filled with anguish that the sweat of anxiety busted some capillaries and so blood came out. This is how anguished Jesus was. What was it that caused Jesus to be so filled with these thoughts as he faced the prospect of death? I'll tell you, it's not death itself. Verse 38, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He doesn't say my soul is overwhelmed to the point of sorrow because of death. So death is not the cause of the anxiety. Death is the effect of the anxiety. So here's what he's saying. There's something about what is about to happen to me that is so overwhelming and so anxiety-producing and so colossally otherworldly that no one has ever faced that we will never begin to comprehend what it is to be in such deep anguish of heart that our sweat becomes blood. What is it that Jesus is facing here? He says in verse 39, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. And it's not death that Jesus fears. It's a cup. What in the world is this cup that Jesus is talking about? 
If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. In Isaiah 51, 17, it says, Arise, Jerusalem. And it talks about this cup. The cup of wrath that causes men to stagger. Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, two chapters before, he talks about the prophesied suffering servant that is Jesus, talks about a cup that contains the wrath of God that when people think about it, it makes them stagger and stumble as if they had already drunk a cup of the fiercest kind of alcohol, the kind of cup that makes drunk men stumble and stagger around. In fact, Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus, when he prayed, stood up and constantly fell back down to the ground. This is the staggering that Isaiah is talking about. Why? What is it about the cup that caused Jesus to be in such anguish and pain? The Bible tells us that this cup contained all of the concentrated wrath and judgment of God over the sins of every human that's ever lived. One pastor said it is a volcanic firestorm. It's Mount St. Helens concentrated into a tiny little shot glass. And that Jesus would drink that cup. And it is the prospect of drinking that cup of God's wrath that causes him to stagger and to stumble and to sweat blood. What's in this cup? It's the wrath of God for every sin that you and I have ever committed. It's the wrath of God for every careless thought, every mindless word, for every lustful desire. For every half-hearted worship, for every half-hearted song, for every gossip morsel of gossip that we've not only enjoyed, but we've spewed out to other people. It's the wrath of God over every lie that we've told, over every sin that we've committed, over the collective sin of the world, of all of the tyrants of, 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 of genocide, of persecution, of prostitution, of forced slavery. All of these things being concentrated into a cup of wrath that you and I deserved. And Jesus thinking about the billions of people that have ever lived and all of the sin that's ever been committed and the wrath of God over one sin, let alone the billions of countless sins that have ever been committed in a tiny little cup of the wrath of God that has been that is reserved for him and him alone. And Jesus says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But Jesus knows Yet not my will, but yours be done. The question is, will the father answer the heart cry of his son? And you have to think, right? Just think along with me. He's a good, good father. Jesus himself said, listen, if you earthly fathers, you think you're good. But if your son asks you for bread, who of you would give a stone to him if you ask for a fish what kind of a father would give a snake to a son jesus said that and he said if you then though you're evil know how to give good gifts then what would not your father in heaven give you all good gifts the perfect son of god 
in his moment of greatest pain and anguish and utter desperation. Asking his father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I think about my kids, if I began to see them in any kind of anguish. Isn't this true, parents? If, you, if, you, if your son, your daughter is crying out for help because of what they're about to experience, isn't every inclination of our heart to rescue them from that hour, to do whatever we can to sustain them, to strengthen them. In fact, God the Father sends angels to minister to Jesus. But what about the cup? The songs that we sing and the Bible that we read tells us that in that moment of greatest need, the Father turned his face from his only begotten Son so that at the cross, Jesus Christ drank all of the wrath of God and took it upon himself. That Jesus faced death all by himself because he knew that it was the will of the Father. Jesus faced death all by himself because he knew that the will of God, not my will but yours be done, the only way that you and I could be saved was that Jesus drink the cup of wrath that you and I deserved in order that we could drink the cup of grace that only Jesus deserved. This is amazing grace. The reason why we can sing, death, where is your sting? The reason why we can face death in victory. The reason why we can go through death and know that the Father will hold our hand is because Jesus went through death and he lost the grip of the Father. He went through death and he had nobody to walk through that with. The reason why we can have such grace is because Jesus took all of God's wrath upon himself. What do you do when you think about that? What do you do when you think about the fact that all of that was deserved for us, reserved for us, but he willingly took it for himself? What does that do in you? When you and I, when we think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, we scarce can take it in. That on the cross, our burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away our sin. Does your soul sing? Does your soul sing, my God, how great thou art? What other response is there for our... It's a natural response. We don't need to... uh, Nobody needs to tell our soul in light of that. My soul will sing your praise unending. 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. It's a natural response when we think about the gospel. That this is what Christ has done for us. And so as we prepare to come to this table of grace, we know that every time we drink of the cup, because Jesus took the firestorm of God's wrath upon himself, every last drop until it was finished. What does that mean? Here's what it means. 
quite singular is this what it means. There is no drop of wrath left for the people of God. The only thing left is God's infinite mercy and love to those who believe in him. That's our hope. That's our reality. That's the reason why we can go to him in our hour of greatest need. Let's pray. Let's reflect upon the word of God this morning. Do we understand, right? Do we understand how heinous our sin is and how awful our sin is? And so often we just excuse it and say, oh, God will forgive me. God will forgive me. It's not that big a deal. It's just a momentary lapse. It's just one time. It's not that big a deal. Jesus died for me. But do you understand the price that it cost for you and me to be forgiven? Every time we go back to our sin, every time we go back to our addictions, every time we go back to that sin that we so easily excuse, do we understand Jesus took the price paid the price for our prayerlessness, for our lack of trust, for all the things that we've done sinful against the holy God. Let's not take the sacrifice of Jesus for granted. Let's not take it lightly. Oh, how we need the grace of God in order to understand this. How we need the Holy Spirit to awaken our minds to grapple with the reality of our sin. Let's spend a few moments coming before the Lord God and asking that He would convict us of our sin and of our need for a Savior. Let's confess our prayerlessness before God. Let's confess our token Christianity before the Lord God. Let's confess the things that we've placed before Jesus that cause us to say, I don't have time for you. Let's confess these things before the Lord God and turn away in order that we might live for God and live in his grace. Let's spend a few moments in prayer in this way.
kid that nobody likes. Jesus died for every time we turned a blind eye to the injustice in the workplace. Jesus died for every sin that we've ever committed. The more we understand that it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. He loves us no matter what we've done. He drank all of the wrath so that all that's left is the love of God overflowing over us. Now we can drink a firestorm of God's furious love concentrated in a cup every time we come to our God. This is amazing love for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace that has given us what we could never earn or deserve. And we thank you for your mercy that has withheld from us the wrath and the judgment and the fury that our sins made us deserve. We thank you that we are yours, that we bear your name, that we belong to you, and that you will fight for our hearts. For the sake of the God who longs for more of us, help us, O oh Lord God. That means to wake up earlier to withdraw from our leisure sooner, to make a decision to come to a prayer meeting. Whatever it takes, teach us to train our bodies for godliness, that because the flesh is weak, the spirit willing, Lord, teach us to train our bodies in order that we might experience the love and the grace and the promises that you have given to us. Thank you, Lord God, and as we come to this table of grace, May we experience the power of your presence. We need you. We love you. Be real. Be personal. Be powerful to us. In Jesus' name.